We're going to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation 2. I mentioned last week, halfway through the book of Galatians, take a couple of weeks to just look at some other passages. Lord willing, we'll probably come back to Galatians next week. But uh, for this morning, I believe the Lord has for us to meditate on this section from the second chapter of Revelation. Have you ever read somebody else's mail? <laughs> okay, you can admit it. It's a safe space, all right? Um, at least you were curious. But we're going to read somebody else's mail this morning. Uh, this is a letter, uh, a record of an ancient letter that was literally sent to an ancient church in Asia back in the days of the Apostle John, who lived probably the longest of any of the apostles. Um, of course, there were other letters that were written to the church in Ephesus. We know one as the inspired book of Ephesus in our Bibles that was written by Paul, this letter written by John. But of course, John's not the ultimate author of this letter. John's just sort of the amanuensis, if you will. Uh, this letter actually came to the church, of which John pastored, actually, uh, for a period of time. But the letter comes from none other than Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus who appears to John in a vision. This has got to be one of the most extraordinary set of letters in all the Bible. I mean, every word of God is inspired by the Spirit. But this to come directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus um, is just such a sweet thing. And uh, the reason we're reading it, of course, today is that it's not just a letter for the ancient church of Ephesus. It's a letter for all of the churches. In fact, there were. this is a part of a collection of seven letters that were sent to a, a group of churches across that ancient area of Asia. And in every one of the letters, at the end of the letter, it says, now let he, the person who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. The idea being that this letter was not just to help them, but it was then inspired by God to help all of the churches and all of us who are gathered here together this morning. These seven churches in that ancient area of Asia were kind of representative of all the all different kinds of churches throughout all of history. Uh, churches are unique in the problems that they deal with, different assemblies of God's people struggling with different struggles, having different strengths. And this really speaks to the to the beauty of the body of Christ in all of its diversity so even encouraging one another where we have our weaknesses and being examples where we have our strengths. You probably have read through these letters. Some of you have read through them many times. Um, one of the letters is to the, is to the church in Smyrna. This is the second letter. Um, and it could be described, the church there could be described as a church that was persecuted but victorious. And then you have a letter to the church in Pergamum, which could be described as a church that was courageous but mixed. Some of them were holding on to false teaching. And thirdly, you have, fourthly, you had the letter to the church in Thyatira, which could be described as a church that was growing but compromised. They were engaging in the acts of Jezebel, as the letter says. Then you have the letter to the church in Sardis, 
a church that was dead, but yet with a remnant that were alive. Then you had the letter to the church in Philadelphia who was persevering and protected. The church to the letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea, a church that could be described as self-sufficient and lukewarm. But then you've got this letter, this very first letter, this letter to Ephesus and the saints that were gathered there. And that church could be described, I think, that ancient church as orthodox, but lacking in love. And we'll see that as we read our text this morning. But before that, I was just thinking, you know, the Lord Jesus had something specific to say to every one of these seven churches. And I, it just makes me wonder what he would say, or what he is saying to our assembly here. North Houston, what are our strengths, do you think, in the mind of the Lord Jesus as he sees us and knows us? And what are our weaknesses? What are the areas that we really need to change and grow in? It's an important thing for us to think about. It's an important thing for you to think about your life specifically. If the Lord Jesus were to speak about you right now before all of us, what would he commend? And what would he critique? This letter to the Ephesians we find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the word angel can be also translated messenger. It's a, it's a, it's a heavenly spirit. It's an angel. If it's an earthly being, it's uh, to be a human messenger. Uh, it's possible that this is a reference to angels. It's also possible, maybe probable, that there were representatives from each one of these churches that had made their way in a commission to John to hear a word from the Lord, been given this letter to take back to their church. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Amen. Then he says, but verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You see several things here in this letter. First of all, the speaker. The speaker is ultimately not John, but he is the one who's described as 
the person who holds the seven stars in his hand. He holds the seven stars, which if you remember back to the vision that John was given in chapter 1, is a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ. And the seven stars are those seven angels or messengers of the churches. The Lord's got them all in his hand. He's taking care of them. He's commissioning them. And he is also described as the one who walks among the lampstands, which the vision in chapter 1 said was representative of the churches, which is a reminder that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is in the midst of his church. Wherever churches are gathered as expressions of the church of Christ, his body, there the Lord is in their midst. And I want to remind us all that we're not just here, me, your preacher, and you, the people, but the Lord Christ is in our midst. And we we are here to be judged by him, to be encouraged by him, to be rebuked by him, to be shepherded by his good and gracious hand. I hope that you come today ready to hear his voice. He's speaking to you this morning. In verse 1 it says these are his words. These are his words to the church, to that ancient church. These are his words to all of his churches who are dealing with the same sorts of things. Hear this morning the words of the Lord Jesus. We also see in this uh, letter some commendations. Amen? Praise God for that. I just love how the Lord Jesus so often doesn't come to us with only harshness and only criticism and only critique. I mean, there's so much he could critique, right? I mean, if you were just to say, Lord, you know, examine me. I mean, he could just spend all day the rest of the day just telling you what's wrong with you. But the Lord is so gracious as to encourage us with pointing out the things that he himself is working in us, doing in us. And this church was encouraged by the Lord Jesus, and I just love the way he does it. He does praise them for their works, as he says early on in that, uh, in that letter. Their toil, even. Their labor to the point of exhaustion. This is a strong word. These, were, these folks were busy about the work of the Lord. They were not slack or lazy with, with doing good works. They were also ad, uh, encouraged and upheld for their faithful endurance, their patient endurance. Or as verse 3 says, he says, you endured patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake, having not grown weary. What a praise. What a, what a blessing it is that these people live such lives. I don't know what the uh, church specifically was facing. Some of it depends kind of on when this letter was written. Um, they were facing perhaps persecution. They were facing um, challenges perhaps from the Jews or maybe from the Roman Empire at this time. Um, they were facing local uh, opposition perhaps or even perhaps more uh, organized opposition from abroad. But these folks were, were in it. They were facing a hard time, and yet they stood firm. And then they stood firm, they endured whatever the Lord had ordained for them. They did not back down. 
and specifically he commends their relation to wickedness and false teaching, that they did not abide by abide those things. Verse 2, he says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested and exposed false teachers that came into your midst. And of course, there are many false teachers around, just probably as many today as there ever were, I suppose. And it's uh, important for churches to do just exactly what this church did, to, to test everything, to see whether those things are true to the Word of God. Just because someone stands up in a pulpit, just because someone wears a clerical collar, doesn't mean that they're pre speaking the true Word of God. So it's important for us to examine everything in the light of Scripture, to test everything. Galatians chapter 1, we saw the importance of that. This church was doing that. In verse 6, he says there, they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I don't think anybody knows for sure what the Nicolaitans were teaching or what they were doing that was so evil. Um, there's perhaps a hint down in verses 14 and 15, a connection with another group of false uh, teachers. Perhaps there was sexual perversion involved, spiritual idolatry and adultery uh, were, were a part of this. So in some way they were leading people astray and the church in Ephesus was standing firm. They were standing firm and they were doing the right thing. And by the way, we learned from this that it's okay to hate certain things, right? Isn't that what the text says? You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's okay to hate what God hates. We don't hate it in a proud sort of way, as if we're above that in ourselves. But we should be against what God is against and vocal about it. So the church was, uh, was faithful in so many ways. They were busy for the Lord. They were doctrinally sound. They took a stand for what the Word of God said, um, even when it cost them, when it was difficult for them, when they were getting persecuted for it when they were, weren't able to do their work, when their houses and homes were taken away, when they were thrown into jail, whatever it is that they were facing. And these are no small commendations, right? We don't, don't want to pass over these too quickly. Thank God for what he did in this church. Um, they were commendable. It's commendable that they were orthodox. And it's commendable for churches today that we are orthodox, able to identify as heresies, the, the doctrines of the Church of Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses or things like that. It's commendable that we care about right doctrine. It's commendable to stand for biblically faithful practice, to stand and hate abortion and sexual perversions that are so acceptable in the broader culture. It is commendable, and we have to keep vigilant about those things so that we might be uh, commended like the church in Ephesus. But what I want you to see this morning also, primarily really to focus on, is that the Lord also chastens the church. And the Lord does chasten every son whom he receives, right? He is a good father who is not willing to let our inconsistencies and our failures and our sins go undealt with. And he will make sure that the Ephesians uh, are confronted. He says in verse 4, But I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That really is it this morning. That is the sermon. It is this challenge to this otherwise orthodox church, this church that had all their doctrine right. His command was, his challenge to them was that they had left their love that they had at first. And I just wonder if this is the Savior's word to you this morning or to me. You know, I've lived as a Christian long enough to know that there are times when my love and the love that I had at first wanes, when it grows dim. And every Christian and every church at some point needs to be confronted with this kind of word from Christ. They have left the love that they had at first. And of course, there's a couple of possibilities as to what he's referring to here, at least a couple. What does he mean they left the love that they had at first? And he could be talking about love for people, um, love for those around them, Perhaps it was that they'd been so busy in activity that they had neglected those around them or so intent on winning an argument that they'd really lost the love for the people that they were trying to win. Maybe they were doctrinally correct, but just cold and hard toward others around them. They, they claimed the truth of Christ, but they lacked the heart of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you know it. Well, somebody like that is like a clanging gong, a noisy, crashing cymbal, just a jarring sound to those who are hearing it when there's no love and no care for the people around. So perhaps it's, it's a reference to love for people, or perhaps it's a reference to love for Christ himself. They've grown cold. They've left that love that they first had for the Lord Christ. And of course, the truth is both of these things go together. You can't separate love for Christ from love for his people, love for the world. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. All right? They go together. But of course, the love for Christ is more primary. It's at the root of everything else. It's the first and greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Let me ask you this morning. Could you say that with any degree of a clean conscience this morning? I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I guess I don't know anybody. I can't imagine anybody that can say it. That's me perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Right now, would you say that your love for the Lord, your love for His people is warm or has it grown cold? Have you left that love that you had at first? The Lord challenged His people in the Old Testament along these same lines. Jeremiah 2, verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me 
But now the Lord said to his people, you've abandoned me. You've left me to go after other loves. You've left me the fountain of clear living water to go dig out for yourselves your own cisterns that can't hold any water and you're drinking the water that could never satisfy. The Lord is challenging the people of Ephesus. Remember that love that they had at first, like the love of the Lord for his bride, Israel. You remember what it was like when you were dating? You were in love. Like when you first got engaged. When you went on your honeymoon, you just couldn't get enough time together. Those early years. You know, the truth is we can never, I think, recapture the newness of our relationship with Christ like when we first were converted. But we can have a love for Christ that grows deeper and richer. And it's also possible at the same time to lose it, to walk away from it, to abandon it to to a degree, um, to, to let that love grow cold, to take it for granted, to assume it as a matter of course. Let me ask you this morning, is that you? Is your love for the Lord grown cold? I can become so self-absorbed. You and I can become so consumed with our job, our career, our hobby, sports, our vacation, whatever it is that we lose out on the joy that we first found in Christ. Remember the seed that Jesus told that springs up and very quickly other things spring up, the weeds spring up and choke it out? The cares of this world, Jesus said, threaten to undo the love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. At first, Demas, you remember, was a uh, a fellow companion of Paul, but deserted him, having loved this present world. Maybe that's what's got into some of us. Maybe we've just gotten consumed. You know, we just we're just planning that next vacation. We're just thinking about the things that we need to get, the way that we're going to need to make ends meet. We're all consumed with the things of this world and the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him has just kind of gone on autopilot. Have you abandoned your first love? Some of you have fond memories of when you were first saved. When you were really, maybe a time in your life when you were really into the study of the Word. Maybe a time in your life when your prayer prayer life, when your communion with God in prayer was much deeper or a lot sweeter, much more consistent than it has been of late. Maybe you remember a time in your life when you were actively seeking to serve the body of Christ more faithfully out of love for the Savior or witnessing, you were more bold in witnessing for His name. Someone said, you know, you've abandoned your first love when You can go for hours or days without having one passing thought about Him. Or when you can worship, but your worship when you gather with the people of God is just formal and dry and lifeless and like you're just going through the motions. Or when your private prayer and your private worship are almost non-existent. Or when you're more concerned about 
physical health and well-being and comfort than you are about the well-being and the condition of your soul. Or you've abandoned your first love when you crave physical food, but you have little appetite for spiritual food. When you crave human companionship, but think little of communion with Christ. When your obedience and your service for the Lord are motivated and fueled by the expectations of others, or by a desire to impress others more than a passion for Christ. But when your service for Christ and for others is done merely out of a sense of, of duty or obligation, or when you find yourself becoming resentful over the hardships and the demands of serving Christ or serving His people, or when you have a hard time coming up with something anything new or fresh that God is doing in your life and teaching you and working in you when it's time to bear testimony or when someone asks you, what's God been up to in your life? You've left your first love when you've drawn back into sin habits that you once had put off when you were a younger believer or when the little things that used to disturb your conscience no longer seem to bother you very much. Or when you enjoy certain sins and want to hang on to them just a little bit longer before you give them up. We've left our first love when we're not grieved by our sin, when it's no big deal to us anymore. When we're self-righteous, when we're more concerned about sin in other people's lives than sin in our own life, when we hold on tightly to money and things rather than being quick to give to the needs of others, when we rarely give sacrificially to the Lord's work, when you rarely bear witness of the gospel to lost people anymore, maybe we've left our love that we had at first Sometimes Christianity can become just a checklist rather than a living, sweet, growing, deepening relationship with God in Christ. Maybe for you, your spiritual life, at least in some level, has become just spiritual ritual, empty ritual. It's become a Sunday show. It's become a drudgery. You know, Malachi chapter 1, Malachi the Lord through Malachi chastens his, the, his people, the people of Israel. And one thing that the Lord says to them is, you have abandoned my worship. You have corrupted my worship. You have left off really worshiping me and honoring my name. And the people say, how? What do you mean? We're still going to the temple. We're still offering our sacrifices. And God's answer to them is, this, you are abandoning me because when you go and offer your sacrifices, you're saying to yourselves, oh, what a weariness this is. Maybe, maybe you've just come to the place where you're like that right now. And, and, and you pick up the Bible in the morning to read the scripture and you just say, I need to read this, but you know, it's a weariness. You come to church, what a weariness this is. Serving the Lord in some way. You just, you just come to a point where your love that you had at first is 
waning. Maybe it's become that way for you, but friends, the Lord Jesus wants to tell us this morning not to let it stay that way. You can't replace the newness, you know, and I think some people think that, you know, I've got to go back and sort of recapture the way it felt when I was first converted to Christ. There is something about that that's, that's just like when you got married for the first time. Uh, and, and you married that woman, and everything was brand new. Everything was a new discovery. Every day you were learning something new, and you've, you've never had a home before together. You've never lived together. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing, and you're enjoying every second of every new day. And it's not like that when you're 20 years married. It's just not. But it doesn't mean that the love is any less. The difference is that rather than the love being new, the love is deeper. It's broader. It's, it has a vast storehouse full of memories that you've made together upon which to draw. It's got a lifelong uh, habit of learning all of the ins and outs of that other person. Uh, it's got it's got a history of seeing the the trustworthiness and the qualities of that person that you come to admire more and more. And and it's just sometimes though after twenty years we become used to all of that and blind to all of that and our marriages suffer. Right? Isn't that just the case? And we have to go back and rediscover not the the newness of that marriage, but the, the, the joy and the delight that is that other person. Open our eyes again and to see. And in the same way, it's true with regard to our relationship with the Lord Christ. We grow accustomed to His grace, as it were. And when that happens, we're in danger of, I think, what probably had happened to the Ephesian church at some level that is that they had abandoned the love that they had at first. But in verse 5, the Lord gave to them a plan for reformation and a warning for refusal. He says to them, remember, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The plan of restoration is threefold, friends, for us this morning. Number one, remember. He says to them, remember from where you have fallen. I, I really do take heart at this, that the very first stirring of revival in my heart is the realization that I need it and the longing for it. Now, I want to tell you, if you think back to a time when you were close to the Lord, and that time was sweet, and it was good, and it was satisfying, and it was delightful, and it gave you a good conscience and a, just a full heart. Boy, friends, go back and remember that. That's what he's telling them. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the sweetness. Remember what it was like. And it's that remembrance that produces a longing for that that is, that is the first wind of the Spirit breathing across the cold desert of your, of your, of your heart. The church in Laodicea, another one of these churches, was a church who said to themselves, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, the Bible says, that they were poor and wretched and blind and naked. 
And that's the way our Christian lives get sometimes. I really believe this, that we go on and kind of get into an autopilot and nothing visibly, outwardly, in any big way is messed up or wrong. No one, we're not getting kicked out of the church. We're attending the services. But inside, we've just come to a point where all of that love that we used to have for the Lord, for His people, is just, is just gone. And the Lord tells us, hey, remember that. Do you remember a time when you, your walk with the Lord was sweet and good? Heaven above was softer blue. Earth about, around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that priceless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, that I am His and He is mine. Remember what a time when you just felt like the whole world was just like that? Because you were so uh, in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when you used to be amazed and astounded by the fact that He loved you? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. You know why grace was so amazing to him? You know why it was so astounding? Because I think Newton never forgot the pit from which he was digged. How the Lord brought him out of the mire of his life before and set his feet on the rock. Newton, after his conversion, had his favorite verse made into a plaque so that he could put it up over his mantle. And it was Deuteronomy 15.15. Most of us go, That's, I don't know what that verse is. Is that a life, somebody's live verse? Here's what it says. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman, a slave, in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God redeemed thee. That's the way Newton thought of himself. He was a slaver, but in the truth, he was the slave. He was the slave of sin, and God set him free from that slavery, and he never wanted to forget it. And friends, that's what happens sometimes when, when for us when we forget that we were from what we, we were delivered, when those things grow old to us, old hat, you remember what God saved you from? Think back. All of the sins of your youth. All of the things from which God has delivered you and is delivering you. The Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin wrote to his son, when I was threatening to become cold in my ministry, and I think every pastor, every church member knows what that's like to come to times in your life where you're struggling with that. He said, when that happens to me, he said, and when I felt the Sabbath morning coming and my heart not filled with amazement at the grace of God, and when I was making ready to dispense the Lord's Supper, you know what I used to do, he says to his son? I used to take a turn up and down in his mind up and down among the sins of my past life. And I always came down with a broken and contrite heart, ready to preach as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, the first step in coming back is to remember. To remember the goodness of God, to remember the grace of God, to remember our sin, to remember what it's like when we used to be close to the Lord. This is a cure. This is the beginning of the cure. 
for all kinds of sins and the apathy that we have for the Lord. Right now, right now, can you think of a time in your life can you remember back to what it was like to just enjoy the Lord with all your heart? Have you tasted that? Uh, if you've never ever tasted that, I guess you can't remember it. And for such, all I can say is that I pray and hope that you will turn to Christ in the first place. But for those who come to Christ, who know the sweetness of being forgiven, who know the closeness of communion with Him, I hope you'll remember it. Secondly, he tells them not only to remember, but to what? What else is in here? Repent. See it in the text? He says to repent and do the works you did at first. Repent. Repent of this as a sin. Friend, confess your lack of love for Christ as a sin. When a person is orthodox, and when he's not obviously sinning outwardly, it's easy to be self-righteous. It's easy to say, okay, I'm not as close to Christ as I used to be, but I'm not very bad. What does the Lord tell these people? This is, this is, if this is your situation, repent. Repent of that. Confess it. Remember from where you've fallen. It is a great evil. You've fallen. You've abandoned that love. You've walked away from love in for the Lord. Love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and greatest commandment. And you know, the longer I've been as, as a Christian, the more I've come to think of this as my greatest sin. Not loving God. It's, it, it makes me ashamed to say it to you. It makes me ashamed to say it to Him. To have to confess to the God who, who is love itself, who has loved me more than anyone else has, who has given me every good gift I have ever enjoyed in the entirety of my life, and to look at him and to have to say, in all honesty, I don't, I don't love you like I should. And I, 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 I always feel like, like Peter, you know, when the Lord confronted him. Peter, do you love me? And at one level, I have to say, yes, Lord, yes, yes, yes. But there's always this conviction hanging over in those moments that that, that love is not, is not what it ought to be. If that's the greatest command in all the world, love the Lord with all your heart, then what could be the greatest sin but not loving the Lord? It's one thing not to obey Him outwardly, but to have to confess that you don't love Him is just a humbling thing indeed. Imagine confessing that to your wife. don't really love you like I should. Confessing that to your child. The Lord says you've got to come to a point where you recognize that there's something deeply, deeply wrong with you. There's a sin that must be confessed of not loving the Lord Christ with all your heart. Maybe some of you today, today is just today. You need to, in the close of the service, just to take some time to confess. But that's where you are. Be honest with the Lord. He already knows your heart. And it may be that there's some specific sin that's robbing you of your love for the Lord. Spurgeon said, if you're going to be 
married to Christ, you have to be divorced from your sin. You want closeness with Jesus, you've got to abandon all of your dabbling in sin. Maybe there's some sin that's robbing you of the thing that's most valuable. You know, that's the worst thing about sin, isn't it? It's not so it's not ultimately that the sin itself is an evil. That, that, that's bad enough. But it's also that that sin keeps you from the thing that's greatest, the love for the Lord, the joy and the glory in Christ that you and I so ought to have. So the first step is to remember, to remember what it used to be like to be near the Lord, to repent of where you are now, to confess it as a great evil and sin against God, and thirdly, to return. Or in the words in the words of the text here, notice what he says to them to do. Uh, he says to remember and to uh, and to repent and do the works you did at first. He tells the Ephesian church to do their first works again. Now, in one sense, the, the, the Ephesians were still doing work, right? Look up at verse 2. They were still doing works. They were still toiling. They were even persevering in their work. But apparently, they had lost the heart of it. It wasn't the first works. It wasn't the kind of work that they used to do. It wasn't work from the heart. It was kind of work, I don't know, maybe it was a little bit, maybe a little bit like Martha uh, fell into. You remember how she was working, 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 working for Jesus, but missing out on the real heart of it, to be in the presence of her Lord. The Lord said, there's one thing that you need. And that one thing is what every one of us need. In many cases, though we're very busy, we begin to neglect the kinds of things that we used to do when we really loved Christ. Like a husband and wife who over time stops doing the things that they used to do out of enjoyment of each other, spending time together, talking deeply together praying together, going on walks together, going out on dates, writing notes, saying nice things to each other. And over time, they've just left all of that. And, and the point is not to tell them, you should be doing those things for each other. The point is to say, do those things in the way that you did them at first, out of love for one another. Rejoice in each other. Spend those times together. And, you know, in some of our relationship with Christ, maybe your relationship with Christ, you need to return to the things of uh, the things you did at first, the works uh, that that people who want to be near the Lord Jesus Christ do, making good use of the means of grace. Some of you grew up, some of you grew up going to church every service, and maybe you've gotten to the point where you've gotten a little bit apathetic about church attendance. And the Lord says to you, come back. Come back to this means of grace. Some of you used to read the Bible, used to study a lot more, used to open up the Word regularly, and often you found beautiful and heartwarming things. Often your thinking was set straight by the Word. You need to pick that up again. Begin a new plan, open a new book, start a new study. 
decide that tomorrow is going to be a new day in doing those first works. Brothers and sisters, we should stop neglecting the Lord's Supper as a means of grace to draw near to the Lord, to be aware again of our sin and of the beauty and glory of the gospel. It is a participation in Christ. Some of us need to put away our worldly entertainment for a little while and pick up some godly music that will encourage our hearts toward the Lord. Pick up a good book, a book that will challenge us to think God's thoughts after Him. Do those works that you did at first. I will say that almost every time that I've found my heart growing cold toward the Lord, even while going through the motions outwardly, I found that I wasn't really laying hold of the means of grace earnestly. I was just kind of going through the motions and remembering the joy of those things drives me back to those means of grace, not as a mere duty, but in search of that delight that I used to know. You know what I'm saying? That's what God wants for you. That's what the Lord Jesus wants for you. This sermon is Him speaking to you through this text, to your heart, saying, brother, sister, son, daughter, you have abandoned the love that you used to have. Oh, come back. Remember what it used to be like. Repent and return and do those works that you did at first. Do them earnestly. Labor in those things, not as, a, not as an end in themselves, but as a means to draw near to me. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, in talking about the means of grace, said, Though perhaps a man may find himself dead and dull, yet the best things have left such a taste and relish in his soul that he cannot be long without them. Amen? You know what that feels like? You say, oh, I need that again. I want that closeness with the Lord. He said, if we do not find ourselves the people of God's delight, let us attend upon the means of salvation and wait God's good time and not stand disputing. Perhaps God hath not a purpose to save me, but zealous in obedience, cast ourselves into the arms of Christ, saying, if I perish, I perish here. And that's the way it is with somebody who finally gets desperate enough in his apathy to draw near to God again, to lay hold of the means of grace and to say, Lord, uh, I need you. And I, I'm in the word and I'm in prayer because I need you. I'm in, I'm in your house. I'm under your word. I'm, I'm, I'm at the, the Lord's table because I need you. And I think perhaps the most important of all is pray, 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 pray until God answers your prayer and revives your heart. And all I can say is that from years of experience of this sad cycle of losing a love for the Lord and finding it again, is that the Lord answers prayer. Amen? The Lord answers prayer. And if you'll seek Him diligently, as He says in Proverbs 8, you will find Him.
Go back. Return to the Lord. Seek him diligently. Wait on him. Wait and wait and wait. Pray, read, hear the word. Wait on him until he answers you. Until your love is revived. Until your heart is renewed. Until he gives you again the joy of your salvation. And there is a great hope in him. If he is a God who answers prayer. Of course, there's a warning here too in verse 5. If not, the Lord says to the people of uh, the church of Ephesus, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Lord would come and shut down their church. And you know, some churches need to be shut down because they've long outlived their love for Christ. Their doors are being kept open only by religious tradition. I'm of the, of the opinion that that can't last forever. And sometimes the way it happens is that one generation has a real love and a zeal for Christ. And the next generation sometimes loses that. Many were unconverted. But yet they hold on to tradition. They hold on to the church for the sake of tradition. But when it comes to that third generation... In the end, they just walk away. Because at the root of it, if there is no love for Christ, there is nothing to hold us here. And the Lord will come and shut the doors of the church. Death by lack of love is the silent killer. And uh, I know it happens. It happens in the lives of believers. And there are doubtless some of you that just need to hear this word from Christ this morning. Now the good news is that Christ revives. And that churches can be renewed. That individuals can be revived if they'll heed the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it was just a few decades later that a church father by the name of Ignatius wrote a letter to this same church recorded in church history. And apparent from that letter is the fact that this church did re repent and did regain much of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, much of their joy of their salvation and their testimony as a church that stood for His name. So there is hope for every one of us if we heed the words of Christ. Would you bow and pray now? Very simple message this morning. Not a whole lot to grapple with intellectually here. Not a whole lot of words that are hard to understand or references that are obscure. But I think one of the hardest things is to receive and let that word have an impact on our lives. And that's, that's, what, that's really what you need to take away with you this morning. Is that this is the word of Christ for you. Wherever you are, if you're struggling, if you've been just living in a, in a little bit of apathy toward the Lord Jesus, you would hear him admonish you this morning and take it to heart. Repent and return. As the pianist plays a verse of a hymn, would you continue to pray right where you are?